Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, to, to better strengthen and serve your communities? And today is episode 70. We're going to talk about new laws today from the General Assembly that were part of the 2022 special session. And last episode, we talked about a lot of new laws. Uh, like I said last time, this year was a very different year than, than last year's session and then the special session in 2020, where, to be honest, uh, I was giving a lot of bad news, uh, describing a lot of new complicated requirements, things that were hard to understand, uh, restrictions on law enforcement authority. Some restrictions were hard to understand, hard to implement. Uh, this time around, what we have mostly from the General Assembly this year are clarifications on existing law, uh, new tools for you to be able to um, help better strengthen and serve your communities, and also uh, some efforts to clean up language from previous years' uh, bills that were confusing. We didn't get uh, a lot of big improvements, uh, but today we're going to talk about some new statutes that were passed uh, and that, have, that are becoming law regarding uh, elder abuse and abuse of vulnerable victims. Uh, these are some good new tools that we're going to focus on at the beginning. Uh, we're going to talk about some changes for uh, competency to stand trial, but also changes for how to handle people who are found, uh, uh, who are, have subject to TDOs which is a big problem for law enforcement agencies all over Virginia. Uh, certainly, I don't think anybody wants to be involved in uh, TDO custody and transport. And yet, Virginia law has, uh, for you know as long as anyone can remember, uh, put law enforcement in charge of handling people who uh, haven't committed any crime at all, but nevertheless uh, need to be transported for mental health treatment. And this is a big challenge for law enforcement, um, especially since... Uh, it's not just transporting somebody. A lot of times it's sitting with them at the hospital for, you know, maybe days on end. And that is a huge challenge. So we were hoping for some big changes from the General Assembly on that this year. We didn't get them, uh, but we did get some changes. So we'll talk about those um, as well. Uh, we got some new laws regarding uh, law enforcement uh, credentials and firearms after retirement and also uh, retired law enforcement officers. So we'll cover all of that today. And then the last bill I'm going to talk about um, is a big change to facial recognition technology in Virginia. So let's dive into it. And let's start out by talking about um, a change to the Marcus Alert system that was enacted by the General Assembly uh, back in the um, special session and, and, uh, and last year. So what is the Marcus Alert system? So the idea here was from the General Assembly that they wanted to divert calls that were mental health calls, not calls for someone committing a criminal offense, uh, but calls for just somebody who was in mental health crisis away from law enforcement and towards the mental health system. Now, this is something obviously that law enforcement is, you know, generally speaking, perfectly happy with. They don't want to respond to these calls any more than anyone else does. Uh, but the challenge here is uh, twofold. One is, how do you know that what you're receiving is a call for someone who simply has a mental health crisis versus somebody who's you know, committing a criminal offense? If it's just somebody who's walking down the street screaming and waving their hands and running up to people and so on, you, know, you have no idea what that call is and what that issue is. And second of all, um, mental health agencies don't tend to have people who drive around in cars 24 hours a day just waiting for calls to be you know to come in and then go respond to those calls 
Um, but the, that's why that's why we call the police because the police are the people who drive around in cars all day and can respond to those calls. So the idea was to develop a system where every locality was required to develop a at first a protocol, in other words, an agreement about how to do it, and then implement a system whereby. Uh, there would be sort of two 911, you know, routes. It would could be reverted. One would be traditional, go to the police department, and the other would be go to uh, the mental health system. So to start with, uh, the first requirement was that every locality would set up a voluntary database. If you or your somebody in your family was someone who you thought, hey, this is a person who may end up in mental health crisis, maybe the result of a 911 call. Maybe you had somebody who served uh, in who served our military in the uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan and was subject to a tra- traumatic brain injury, came back to the United States, and they had these episodes and it's a problem. And you want to, hey, you don't know when the next crisis is going to be, if you're going to be there, if you're not going to be there. Uh, turn some information over to 911 and say, hey, look, if you encounter my husband, my brother, my son, whatever, um, uh, here's some information that you need to know. He, he was a serviceman in Iraq, and he was uh, a victim of, a, of, an, of an explosion that caused him traumatic brain injury. Here's what you need to know about him. Here's who his provider is. Uh, here's a law enforcement officer who's very familiar with him, that if, he's, if you run into him and he's having trouble and he's in crisis, contact this doctor or this mental health op- uh, this, this law enforcement officer. It's a voluntary database, and it was required to be established in every single locality in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, by July 1 of 2021. That was a pretty quick deadline. They didn't give a lot of time to uh, every jurisdiction. And so uh, uh, so the General Assembly this year, um, and this was a bill uh, by um, uh, Delegate Ransone uh, and also by uh, Senator Stewart, passed a extension for that deadline. And the extension for the 9-1 systems is now extended to July 1 of 2023 to set up that voluntary database. The other thing that Delegate Ransone and Senator Stewart did in their bill, and again, this is taking effect on July 1, but uh, removed the requirement that every locality set up a markers alert system in general. So now that requirement doesn't apply to localities that have less than 40,000 people as population. So if you have less than or equal to 40,000 people, you're not required to set up a Marcus Alert system. Uh, and again, the Marcus Alert system is not just a system that says, oh, you know, don't send police to people in mental health crisis. The idea was don't send police, send uh, people from the mental health community. Well, if I've got a locality of less than 40,000 people, I probably don't have that many law enforcement officers working all day, and I certainly don't have uh, people from my mental health community who are working 24 hours a day, holidays, weekends, and so on. And so, and this system is going to be very expensive. And so localities that have less than 40,000 people are exempt from uh, this requirement of setting up uh, a Marcus Alert system. Um, the, uh, the General Assembly also set a deadline when it set up the Marcus Alert system in the fall of 2020 for jurisdictions to to launch their Marcus Alert system. Um, there were... Um, uh, there was a deadline set up of 2026 for all community service board and behavioral health authority geographic groups to establish a Marcus Alert system, uh, have it in place, ready to go uh, by July 1 of 2026. And again, that deadline was extended by two years. This deadline was extended now to July 1 of 2028. 
uh, to have a community care or mobile crisis team in place. Because uh, again, this is expensive, this is complicated. Um, you're going to have to figure out how to make it work with 911, how they're going to interact with the police. Um, are they going to go with police officers? Are police officers going to stand by? Um, when they get in trouble and something goes bad and they need police help, are police going to be nearby and so on? So uh, that deadline got moved back by two years. Uh, and there were some other requirements that were changed uh, as well as far as reporting. So uh, it changed the Microsoft system and they didn't eliminate it, uh, but they did uh, move some deadlines back. Um, as far as exploitation of vulnerable adults and uh, exploitation of people in the Commonwealth, there were some important changes. Uh, one was a bill from Senator Stewart, from Senator Openshane, and from Delegate Mullen, uh, and this was a change to the statute for misuse of power of attorney or financial exploitation of incapacitated adults. So it's a bipartisan bill. It was a it was a recommendation of the Virginia Criminal Justice Conference. Um, and it enacts a new code section, 18.2178.2. Uh, so this is a new code section enacted in addition to the regular larceny by, free, free, larceny by false pretense code section. And this code section provides that any person who has a power of attorney who knowingly and intentionally engages in the financial exploitation of an incapacitated adult uh, commits a separate and distinct offense, a class one misdemeanor. So... It's not a huge new crime, uh, but it is a new crime uh, of exploiting a vulnerable adult uh, by exploiting a class one misdemeanor. But in addition to that, the General Assembly uh, also enacted a code section, uh, and this is going to be in 18, excuse me, in a change to 18.2178.1, which is the original code section for the financial exploitation of vulnerable adults. So you might remember that this code section, 18.2178.1, was enacted about five years ago um, that, pr that provides that if you know or should know that another person suffers from a mental incapacity, if you use that mental incapacity to take, obtain, or convert money or anything else of value with the intent to permanently deprive that person, uh, that's considered to be larceny. So notice you don't have to steal it, right? You could be the caretaker for this person. And you could say, hey, this person maybe suffers from a severe memory deficit from a lack of understanding of the nature and consequence of their actions because of a brain injury or whatever. Uh, and you say, hey, can I have this um, you know, valuable jewelry? You don't need it anymore. Why don't you give it to me? And the person says, yeah, okay. And I know perfectly well the reason they're agreeing is because they'll agree to anything I say because I'm their caretaker. And I take that and I sell it and I pawn it and get money. Um, they agreed to it, but it's still a crime. I, I'm using their uh, mental their mental impairment, their mental incapacity. I am exploiting that. Uh, that's a very uh, powerful tool that we have that we didn't used to have. So what uh, what happens in the change that was enacted by the General Assembly this year is that they change the word suffers from mental incapacity to a new phrase called vulnerable adult. So now if I exploit any vulnerable adult, uh, then I'm guilty of this code section. And vulnerable adult means any person 18 years of age or older who's impaired by reason of mental illness, intellectual or developmental disability, physical illness or disability, or other causes, including age, uh, to the extent that the adult lacks sufficient understanding or capacity to make, communicate, or carry out reasonable decisions concerning their well-being, 
or has one or more limitations that substantially impair their ability to independently provide for their daily needs. So we have a much more broad definition than simply incapacitated uh, or mental incapacity. Now it's vulnerable. Uh, and, and now exploiting that person who is vulnerable uh, opens me up to that same felony punishment, right? Um, notice, by the way, though, <laughs> that the General Assembly when they enacted this new definition and said, okay, we're not going to talk about mentally incapacitated anymore, we're going to talk about vulnerable adults, they passed this bill, and this is good, uh, but they also passed the bill that said that, you know, you're exploiting somebody, uh, financial exploitation of an incapacitated adult, they left that incapacitated adult definition in place for the uh, power of attorney code section. So it's they're going to have to catch up next year and change it. But I don't think it's a big deal. Um, the big deal is, again, that you have this change in the law uh, that, that allows for uh, punishment of somebody who uh, knowingly takes advantage of somebody uh, to take their money or take their property. Uh, and power of attorneys are a big example of how people are doing this. Um, there's a great case that I encourage you to check out if you do white-collar cases or you do cases involving exploitation of vulnerable adults, older adults, people of power of attorneys. Check out Chittum versus Commonwealth, uh, which is a case, it's an unpublished case from the Court of Appeals from January of 2022. And it's a case where the Commonwealth in Roanoke County prosecuted uh, an individual for uh, who's a power who had a power of attorney, and uh, and stole one hundred and sixty thousand dollars from uh, it's actually their mother, uh, and the Commonwealth prosecuted the case. The person said, "Well, I'm the power of attorney. I had the right to do that." And here, the Court of Appeals said, "No, you don't. Uh, you're the power of attorney. Your responsibility is to take care of that money for the interests of the victim. And here, you just converted it to your own use. That's not being a power of attorney. That's just being a thief. And it's really powerful language." Uh, so here you see the Commonwealth, the, the Court of Appeals, and the General Assembly cracking down on power of attorneys. Uh, and, and that's good. Um, unfortunately, the Virginia State Bar this year had to sanction several attorneys who were converting money from people that they were actually, you know, uh, attorneys for. Uh, they were vulnerable um, older adults who uh, lacked the capacity to take care of their own financial resources. And uh, the Virginia State Bar had to sanction several lawyers for converting that money to their own use. So this is not something that simply civilians who have power of attorney do. This is something that, um, you know, lawyers do too, and you want to watch out for it. Um, a couple of bills were help, uh, to help out retired law enforcement officers. Uh, one of them is uh, one from Senator Reeves, and this is uh, this was his bill to allow law enforcement officers, uh, when they purchase their firearms, to not have to worry about getting a background check, right? If you're a law enforcement officer, um, if you had committed a felony or a disqualifying offense, you couldn't be a law enforcement officer anymore, right? So what's the point of running another background check when you give that law enforcement, you sell that law enforcement officer their firearm uh, when they retire? It's an idiotic uh, and pointless exercise, and Senator Reeves had that removed. So now if you retire as a law enforcement officer and you buy your firearm, you don't have to get a background check uh, when that's done. And in addition now, uh, to buy your firearm um, at the end of your time as a law enforcement officer, it, it, that is not restricted to only full-time law enforcement officers. So now let's say, for example, you convert from full-time to part-time, 
and then you leave your employment, uh, the fact that you were part-time when you left your employment doesn't disqualify you from purchasing your firearm. And in fact, let's say you remained as a part-time officer the entire time that you were a law enforcement officer. Uh, as long as you had at least 10 years of state service, uh, you could purchase your firearm uh, for a dollar. Uh, and again, that's an improvement for law enforcement officers. Uh, and that's um, a, uh, it's, it's a bill from Delegate Helmer, uh, who introduced that in the House, and Senator Peterson, who introduced that in the Senate. So that will take effect on July 1. Part-time law enforcement officers can purchase their firearm at the end of 10 years of service. Um, law enforcement officers who have at least 10 years of service and have been diagnosed with PTSD also now can retain their badge. Uh, they can get their badge awarded to them uh, in a you know display box or some way that they can't actually carry it as a real badge. Um, and it will uh, designate that they honorably served. And they can get a photo ID card as well um, that indicates that they uh, are a retired law enforcement officer. Um, and this and this goes into effect again on July 1. Uh, so uh, hopefully it doesn't cover that many officers. But for those officers who do retire after uh, having post-traumatic stress disorder after 10 years, they can get an honorary uh, badge and identification card. Um, as far, while we're talking about weapons, uh, it would be worthwhile as well uh, to talk about a change uh, introduced by uh, Delegate Williams to, um, and also by Senator Reeves again, uh, to the restrictions that the General Assembly enacted in the fall of 2020 on law enforcement equipment. So you might remember that the General Assembly enacted this um, broad restriction on law enforcement agencies' abilities to acquire all sorts of different equipment. Um, MRAPs, um, the, uh, grenades, grenade launchers, aircraft that are configured for combat, um, weaponized unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, weaponized tracked um, uh, vehicles, a uh, bunch of other stuff, um, bayonets, because I guess you'd love to buy a bayonet for some reason, I don't know. Um, but they all, one of the restrictions they also enacted was they said that uh, law enforcement agencies could not acquire firearms of 50 caliber or higher or ammunition of 50 caliber or higher. Well, they passed a lot of bills, they passed them really fast, and they weren't interested in law enforcement feedback, and again, restricted all feedback to a minute uh, when didn't meet with anybody because of COVID. So uh, when they're moving that fast and they're doing all these things really quickly and not listening to any law enforcement feedback, um, they didn't have anybody to point out to them that uh, ammunition of 50 caliber or higher would include uh, pepper ball guns, would include um, taser cartridges and shotguns, would include uh, beanbag rounds, would include lots of stuff that's that's 50 caliber or higher because it's larger than 50 caliber. Uh, and in fact, frankly, bank banned shotguns. Uh, law enforcement agencies could not uh, purchase or deploy shotguns anymore because, again, those are firearms of 50 caliber or higher. Uh, the shotgun ca uh, cartridge is more than 50 caliber. So, um, you know, the, the governor, Governor Northam, issued a ruling basically that said, nah, it doesn't mean that. Um, but he was kind of, you know, gilding the lily a little bit on that one. Uh, the General Assembly uh, did pass a bill this year that would uh, eliminate that and just say firearms, not shotguns. So, um, excuse me, not firearms, uh, rifles, rifles of 50 caliber or higher, rifle ammunition of 50 caliber or higher. So um, a shotgun isn't a rifle. 
Um, again, you may say, well, what if my shotgun is rifled? Well, it's still a shotgun. It's not a rifle. Um, so you might have a rifled barrel in a shotgun, but nobody would call that a rifle. It's still a shotgun. So I think that kind of solves that issue. Um, and uh, fortunately, that did pass the House 91 to 5 and pass the Senate 40 to 0. Um, I would tell you this bill originally did eliminate all of the restrictions on uh, purchasing the stuff. So you could have, you could purchase some MRAP, you could purchase a grenade or combat aircraft or weaponized inline vehicle, all that stuff. But um, that that didn't make it. Uh, that that died in the General Assembly. So we do have this fix on the shotgun issue and on the ability to use pepperball guns and um, being bad guns and stuff. That is uh, fortunately fixed. Um, some other changes that I want to cover. Uh, include transportation of people who are subject to a TDO and an ECO. So um, a couple of things. One is, um, you know, there were a lot of bills this year trying to address the problems, the many problems that law enforcement agencies face in handling people who are subject to a TDO or an ECO. Um, none of those, most of those bills did not make it through the General Assembly for one reason or another. One bill that did become law, though, uh, and will take effect on July 1, is um, a bill from Senator Favola. And there were a bunch of different bills on this. Um, Senator Peake had one, uh, Senator Hanger had one, and Senator Deeds had one, all of which would address how to transport somebody um, who's subject to a TDO and whether or not law enforcement agencies had that responsibility. So. Uh, ultimately, the bill that passes and becomes law is Senator Favola's bill. And what Senator Favola's bill does is it creates a presumption that if you've got an alternative transportation provider, that that provider is supposed to be the, the person who does the transport. Um, and the once the um, in determining the transportation provider, the requirement is basically that you shall the magistrates shall designate the alternative transportation transportation provider as the person as the as the uh, as the transporter of the person, um, and cannot override that unless there's nobody available, there's nobody willing to provide the transportation, there's nobody who's able to provide the transportation in a, in a safe manner. Otherwise, it has to be the alternative tra transport provider. And then as soon as that alternative transportation transportation uh, provider has been designated, uh, the primary law enforcement agency can transfer custody as soon as they execute the TDO uh, to, they can transport transfer the person to the alternative transportation provider. And they maintain uh, custody of that person um, until they take them to the facility. And that is true, by the way, even if um, they're looking, the, the state facility, which you're trying to take the person to, is looking for an alternative facility. Um, and so they're looking for them. They, they, there, if, if the magistrate says, for example, okay, we're going to transport this person, we're going to order that this person be taken to um, uh, Western State Hospital uh, in Stanton. Well, okay. So Western state's going to say, yeah, but we're going to look for another place. Don't take us, don't take them here when I'm in beds or whatever. Well, that's not as a law enforcement agency. That's not your problem anymore. You now have an order that says, take this person to Western state. Okay, great. I'm going to execute my TDO. I'm going to turn this person over to the, uh, alternative transportation provider. And then if they want to figure out, okay, no, don't take them to Western state, take them to, 
you know, wherever, uh, great. You all can figure that out on your own time. This is not my issue anymore. I'm not going to have to tie up having a law enforcement officer sit with this person while the state, you know, fools around and try to figure out where they're going to take them to. Um, so this doesn't solve all your problems. I 100% agree, 100% under, I'm aware of the fact that this doesn't solve all your problems, but it is a big improvement uh, to the statute, I think. It hopefully will make things a little bit easier for you. Um, in addition to that, the other thing the General Assembly did, uh, and this was a, uh, a bill from Senator Newman uh, that will again take effect on July 1, is, uh, is that law enforcement agencies now also uh, can use um, an auxiliary police officer can basically activate a law auxiliary police officer who's met the certain certain training requirements uh, to provide transportation for people who are subject to uh, ECOs or TDOs as well. So if your locality has auxiliary police officers, and this is a program that you can look into, it does have certain training requirements, um, it does make them law enforcement officers for certain purposes, um, and um, they, you know, and you, and you can look into the code sections, a whole lot of requirements for them, but you can use your auxiliary police officers to do TDO or ECO transports. And I think that might be an improvement for you or it might be a tool for you to take advantage of if you wanted to, uh, to kind of create your own alternative transportation when the alternative transportation uh, provider is not available. Um, and by the way, when we're talking about auxiliary police officers and uh, trying to cover your staffing issues, um, another bill uh, that was passed, uh, and this was a bill from um, from Senator Hackworth, is a bill that allows basically retired law enforcement officers to come back into service as long as they uh, are retired, they have previous training and experience as a law enforcement officer, um, they are receiving retirement or they're eligible to get retirement, and they have a break in service of uh, less than five years between their retirement and their new service, um, they can basically reactivate or become law enforcement officers again without going back to uh, the academy. And so uh, that's, I think, a good thing. I don't know how many people are going to um, retire, uh, have a break in service of that kind of period of time, and then decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back to work. I want to be a law enforcement officer again. Uh, but if you do make that decision, uh, that is an option available for your law enforcement agency as well. And then the last bill that I want to talk about is a bill from Senator Suravel uh, regarding facial recognition technology. So you may remember that a number of years ago, the General Assembly essentially banned using facial recognition technology in the Commonwealth of Virginia for law enforcement purposes. There were very limited uh, exceptions uh, for airports, uh, and so on. But in general, law enforcement could not use or deploy facial recognition technology. Senator Suravel's bill introduces for the first time a set of requirements and restrictions that do uh, allow law enforcement to use facial recognition technology. Um, th it's a very complicated bill. I'm not going to go through it in great detail. If your agency is thinking about doing this, be aware. There's a lot of requirements about what kind of technology, about how to use it, about uh, notifying the public, putting, you know, publishing the standards, what kind of technology you can use, uh, the standards of the technology. It's very restrictive. 
And um, he lists about 14 different reasons that you could use facial recognition technology if you had uh, followed all those requirements and restrictions. Uh, and it's to help identify uh, people at a standard of reasonable suspicion to believe the person has, has committed some kind of crime, identifying crime victims, help identifying victims of human trafficking, uh, identify uh, online recruiters of criminal offenses, um, people who might be suffering from a disability who are not able to communicate, identify that person, identify a deceased person or a person who's incapacitated or can't identify themselves, uh, identify people who are dangerous themselves or others, uh, mitigate threats to safety, um, lots of different reasons listed in the bill um, about, uh, or, you know, identify a person who might be lying to you about who they are. You, you, they're telling you, they're giving you one identity, and you're like, that's not who this person is. Um, and so if you follow these very strict requirements, you can, you could purchase and deploy uh, facial recognition technology. Um, and I will tell you that there are a lot of law enforcement agencies in, in the United States who have experimented with, who's worked with this, who've tried this. There's different companies. Uh, Clearview, I think, is one of the big vendors in this area. Um, you are not allowed under this code section to use the uh, to use the technology to establish probable cause to issue a search warrant or an arrest warrant. Um, but that's fine because honestly, Clearview or any of the other facial recognition companies will tell you, you shouldn't use their technology for that anyway. It's not designed to that. It's not designed to give you probable cause. It's designed to give you a lead. Uh, say, hey, maybe you should take a look at this person. Do you think this person might be your offender? Uh, because, you know, they, they, our, our technology has, uh, you know, can't eliminate them as a person who might be in, involved in your case. And, you know, so it might be worth looking at that. Um, you can't use it to track somebody in real time. You can't create a database uh, using your facial recognition technology. In other words, track people in real time and then uh, keep a database of who was in the area um, or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, under the code section, there's also an interesting um, uh, provision. It says that a match made through facial recognition technology shall be admissible as exculpatory evidence. It just is a one little phrase here. Um, which is kind of an interesting phrase, but to be honest, I doubt this will ever come up because you're never going to get through Clearview AI or any of the other facial recognition companies a match. Uh, that's not what they do. They don't say, oh, here, our computer has said that this picture is a picture of, uh, you know, John Jones. It's not going to say that. It's going to say, um, you know, hey, this could be John Jones. You might want to take a look at them. I'm not saying it's a match. I'm just saying that's somebody who you should take a look at. Um, so I don't know how... Uh, applicable that is ever going to be. I don't think that you ever see that. You, it's like a DNA. You don't get a match for DNA. No, the, the Department of Forensic Science never says, oh, yeah, here, we've got a match in DNA, and this is the DNA match. That's not a thing. That's so, anyway. Um, so, anyway, so a bunch of new laws, uh, a bunch of new laws from the General Assembly uh, that are worth uh, considering, and I hope that was helpful to you. Uh, as a reminder, uh, we, our podcast is on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. You can just listen from the web that way. We're on Stitcher. If you want me to be another podcast, let me know. I hope today was interesting. I hope today was helpful. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Stay safe and don't get captured.